This is the Education Gadfly Show. What the Essa era, and I think I'm up to 15. I hope this isn't turning into a drinking game somewhere. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwenk of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. Now, please join me in welcoming our special guest on this week's podcast, the Lord of Education Reform, Yam Menon, <laughs> the Vice President of Advocacy and Policy at 50Can. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great Is to have you Lord on. with an E or without the E? Lord with an E and welcome Brandon. We've got Brandon <laughs> on too. I just want to say that this week's pop culture reference was really hard for me to come up with. Uh, Mike is obviously gone, so no sport or baseball references from me. That is policy. And like, I didn't want to call you Taylor Swift because a lot of people on the internet have a lot of feelings about her. Sure. And the other major thing in pop culture was the Game of Thrones finale on Sunday. I'm in the middle of season five. I'm catching up, but I'm like inside my office with the door closed because everyone's talking about it. So I yeah. can't make a reference there. So I settled on Lord, who performed at the VMAs with the flu. So she did an interpretive dance. I wish I could be as cool as Lord. Yeah. It's pretty good. Long-winded explanation there. Like the stomach flu or like influenza flu? I have no idea, but she clearly could not sing. Stomach flu did not come into play in the performance. I have an issue with the cultural use of flu because almost everybody uses it for the stomach flu. Which isn't serious, but influenza is. Uh, she clearly it is, could it is not. something that everyone should stop doing. She clearly could not sing. Her voice was impeded. Strong feelings about it. Brandon writes random opinion of the week. Yes. Well, she clearly could not sing, so she did in her interpretive dance which I appreciate like her level of like honoring her commitment even if she could not you know fully perform the song from the new album which is excellent is some sort of my flow? random opinion of the week All some right. sort of illness some sort of dress <laughs> but this is not the VMA's deconstruction show this is the education gadfly show so we're gonna talk through the ed reform update So we are heading into what we have to admit is probably the final week of summer. Most kids are back in school. Mm-hmm. Everyone is missing Monday morning or Wednesday morning meetings because their kids are going back. It's the first day. Teachers have been back for a while. Pools are closing. Labor Day is next week. And with fall and the onset of September comes state legislatures going back into session. And this year, I think the kind of fall legislature session is especially interesting because as we all know, the final batch of 34 ESSA plans are coming into the department in the next couple of weeks. And with that, that means either that A states are probably going to be turning away from this, you know, moment of like ESSA plan, ESSA plan, ESSA plan, let's craft our ESSA plan Mm -hmm. into implementation, which is a huge Mm -hmm. variable and something we're going to be discussing. But we're also going to enter this kind of long anticipated or long feared, depending on which side you're on, era where it's officially the baton is back to the states. A lot of the energy for reform and for the urgency around improving schools now falls back on the states. We at Fordham have been, you know, pretty pro. You got to give it back to the states for a very long time, but it is uncertain territory. And today we're going to talk about like what we might be seeing this fall. And so my first question, I think, and Yom, I know you work with a ton of states through the Mm -hmm. 50CAN network, um, is, you know, we've all been caught up on ESSA and just talking ESSA. And I've literally said ESSA, I think, nine times now. (laughs) 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 I'm clearly team ESSA, not ESSA. But so what's been happening on the states that we might see this fall that maybe might be able to like cut through some of this chatter around ESSA that hasn't necessarily been at the forefront of the national conversations? Is it pre-K? Is it 
charter funding? Is it something else entirely? What's up? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our states have been really focused on uh, the accountability systems and sections. We saw a lot of activity uh, in the 17 mm-hmm. session around this. A lot of states uh, pushing for systems, uh, making legislative changes, regulatory changes mm-hmm. as needed. Uh, we saw uh, states articulating that obviously as part of their ESSA plans and getting some uh, commentary on that. So I mm-hmm. think, you know, states are sort of in two clear positions. They're in sort of heads down implementation mode, really trying to move forward in this school year, or they're trying to really set themselves up uh, and so that they can transition to meaningful mm-hmm. implementation uh, in, the, in the coming year. Mm-hmm. And anything besides accountability, like what is kind of sneaking on to people's radars and or what are the things that people are head down working on that they can kind of work on now because the focus and the attention isn't there. Um, Standards, testing, assessments, what have we been seeing? Or is it just all ESSA? I think, I mean, I think a lot of it is on ESSA. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, a tangential issue that I've been seeing sort of creeping up over the coming years has been particularly around state budgets and the fiscal situations that Mm -hmm. we see across states. I think, you know, more than ever now, we're seeing states really delaying the process, uh, a number of states heading into special sessions, uh, a number mm-hmm. of states either running on executive order or, um, uh, you know, they have uh, they have to they're pushing out their budget cycles. And I think that has we know that has an implication on the education budget. So I, mm-hmm. I think for a lot of states, they're also thinking about that as they're heading into the next session. Is this it's be, sort of becoming a bit of a snowball effect um, by way of the, the fiscal situation that we've been seeing growing over the last set of years. Yeah, I know uh, Illinois in particular has had a, oh, yeah. I think we can call it dramatic, yeah. as dramatic as the Game of Thrones finale. I don't know, but dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a question I have for somebody who deals more directly with states on a more regular basis, um, we in our review of the first 17 plans and sort of going forward in these next 34, um, we've spoken with at least a few states and I won't like name names, uh, that have just plainly said, like, look, we view this as a compliance exercise. We want to put as little as in this plan as possible. We have our own systems and programs that we're going to focus on. And that's really where the bulk of our policy comes in. So aside from sort of the necessary steps or the necessary sort of minimum steps that states have to take, to what extent are you seeing states just say, like, look, we're getting through this. We're we just want the sort of approval and then we're going to move forward in some fairness in sort of the spirit of the law itself and just like do what we think is best. Yeah, I mean, I think if what I've seen from both the engagement with uh, local leaders and their engagement with state agencies, my sense is that uh, they're trying to get a lot of clarity on the law and its implementation. So there's there is a lot of sense of you know how how do we best put put the best foot forward and how do we move forward mm-hmm. in a meaningful way, especially because I think states more than ever are feeling a tremendous sense of responsibility. I think mm-hmm. I think for the most part, uh, what I see you know within our network and in my previous work is we're feeling like, okay, we have been asking for that authority to come back to us. Now it is, how do we meaningfully move forward on that? So mm-hmm. I, I do see that, you know, states uh, are really trying to be very thoughtful and very deliberate about that. I think that's actually where we here uh, can play a role in supporting um, those local mm-hmm. leaders in this work. Are you seeing them, though, kind of getting to Brandon's questions, more viewing the plan that they're submitting as sort of a playbook, like a comprehensive choose your own adventure. This is going to be every step A through, you know, double Z that we're going to take over the next 10 years or more of a framework for like, this is what we're going to do. Here's what we're reporting. And this is the, 
Like, is it the minimum that they're going to do or is it the maximum that they're planning on doing? Yeah, I mean, my sense is there's there's pretty a uh, broad ranging uh, view set of views on this because mm-hmm. you know some of these plans are incredibly they they have to be incredibly detailed to meet um, the mm-hmm. the template and the and the law. Um, I think some states are seeing this uh, as a framework from which they can build upon, and I think others are using this as an opportunity to say, here's the things that we're going to do. We're just we need to make sure that we can move forward on this and and getting that okay from the feds. Mm-hmm. As a former teacher, I see this as like you know you've got some kids that you know. Turn in the assignments like five weeks ahead of time and have everything and then are like give me feedback I want feedback and then others like sweep in at the last minute and they've got kind of their own approach to it that's more like this is my vision here we're going from this yeah yeah um but what are we seeing too and you guys have both read a lot more plans than I have um in these plans that might indicate like what the ESSA era and I think I'm up to 15 I hope this isn't turning into a drinking game somewhere um what do we see as like being the hallmarks of the ESSA era where are states putting their energy where are they putting their focus as they move forward like what sort of things are we going to see action on I've been seeing a lot on like data for example as a huge kind of point of interest and energy right now I've read a good number of the next 34 and I reviewed the first 17. And if I had to sort of boil it down into the most common type of plan, it would be a plan with a summative annual grade for schools, be it five stars or numerical or a letter grade, um, proficiency only achievement and some sort of growth. Mm-hmm. Almost every state, if not every state uses growth. The only one that that's sort of hard to interpret is California. And I still think under their achievement indicator, you could argue it's growth. But still, uh, basically every every single plan has growth as like a big chunk. And then the most common sort of non-academic indicator I've seen is chronic uh, absenteeism. And mm-hmm. here I'm really just speaking uh, K through eight, which is really what we at Fordham have focused on. Um, so that to me is really the most common plan. There, there, there are a decent number of states with uh, performance indexes and a few with scale scores. Um, but I would say the bulk of them still are just proficiency rate only for the achievement indicator. So a lot of growth and then a lot of focus on student absenteeism. Which the biggest is the, like, emergence from NCLB yeah. has been that essentially every state has now done growth, even though they don't mm-hmm. have to. Mm-hmm. So yep. I think that's, to me, the most noteworthy. Yeah, I'm agree. Yeah, and I would also add. I think this is a question that we have continued to see um, is in the in the context of low performing schools and how to meaningfully provide supports and interventions. I think some of these plans have identified how they're going to classify schools, but then it's the next step of, okay, now what to do with these schools? And that's a question that we get a lot, certainly within our network, but we've, we've heard a lot as well. The now what, what's next? We know, Mm -hmm. we know what the grade is. We know what the rating is. Now, how do we meaningfully turn this school around or improve this school? Yeah. I think I've heard several people mention that the absence of detail around there is either frustrating or alarming or potentially a point of concern that we're going to have to be dealing with in 2019, 2020. So look at those plans states um and then kind of just like pivoting away one of the broader questions that i've had i've been having is you know the nclb arrow because there it was so focused in dc and there was such a focus on uniformity and states doing xyz and complying with all of these regulations it became i think fairly easy to or we developed our playbook and we developed a knack for how we're going to influence state policy and how we're going to incent various policies and pull various levers. And it's like, we got this, guys. And I think what we're seeing in some of these plans uh, 
is we're seeing some moves that are frustrating some advocates, they're alarming some others. We're seeing states like Arizona and New Hampshire. There was an editorial by John Klein in Edweek on Monday about whether or not you have to use statewide assessments, and which is kind of one of those things that has just been taken as a fundamental truth in the NCLB era, and now it's kind of being thrown into question. We're seeing uh, California has a data dashboard that is causing some people some angst. And so I guess my big question is, like, how do we influence states? How do we accept and this tension between like supporting states and supporting what they want to do because they believe it's best for their kids, which it is. But if we're in D.C. and if you're an advocate and you have these sort of tenets of what you believe a good accountability system is, like how do you continue to push and influence in this new era. Yeah, and I think there's a, an important role at the local leadership level and for folks here uh, that are trying to support that state-level mm-hmm. work. I think it's more important, and we've se- we're seeing this in our network, and we continue to, to push on this, the, the importance of really uh, supporting and providing key supports and resources and information for mm-hmm. local leaders. So, you know, when I was uh, doing this work uh, in Connecticut, I, I often look to my colleagues uh, here in D.C. to help me, tell me what was going on at the Capitol, tell me what was going on with with state plans and ESSA. Um, so, you know, we look to uh, others to provide those resources. And so I think that is a key opportunity to influence state policy, um, whether it's we have key recommendations, we're seeing best practices across states. It's really an opportunity to, to help local leaders because we tend to be, we're very focused on what's going on at the state level. So mm-hmm. getting a bird's eye view is really, really important here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting sort of takeaways I've had uh, over the last few months, I'm um, speaking with uh, de- state departments of education more um, and reading sort of op-eds from colleagues who have uh, now gone from a, like a national stage to at least setting one or both feed into the sort of state government, state policy um, arena uh, is that clearly everyone, right? sort of wants the best for their state schools, but often in terms of what a given person's favorite policy is, their hands are often tied by local politics, local mm-hmm. bureaucracies, et cetera. Um, so a couple, so I guess sort of two questions for somebody who works with states and you said you, you used to work in a state. A, how frustrating is it for people who work at the state level to sort of read what may be interpreted as like sort of oversimplified or naive national commentaries about like, why don't you just <laughs> do this? And then a follow-up question. <laughs> yeah, Basically, which, which are I'm we sure at we Fordham do. completely useless yeah. all the time? <laughs> so then a follow-up question, which hopefully uh, leads to sort of more constructive um, commentary is what what is actually sort of the best approach for an organization that that primarily um, looks at things from a national stage, to sort of providing commentary on state plans, which is which is going to increasingly be sort of the name of the game under this new federal law, two year old, but yeah. How do we not be jerks? <laughs> and how do we help? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's uh, there's a key role in in both places, and it's a bit really about marrying the two because you have the mm-hmm. local politics and local context with uh, state and federal level policy, and it's really about bringing the two together. And we we certainly feel that. Uh, that sometimes you have to lean in one direction over the other. When I was uh, locally advocating, uh, I would there would be key times like the submission, the timeline um, to submit ESSA plans. Um, the the submission deadline might be a key time and working backwards with folks in D.C. to say, okay, what should we be looking for? What are the key topics mm-hmm. we should be paying attention to 
what are you seeing in, in other states and, and engaging states in that way? Um, and then we can provide, you know, uh, local leaders can provide the context for, well, that wouldn't work here because of X, Y, Z, or that could, that could possibly work. Let's, let's see what we can do in, in our region. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So listen, but be constructive. Yes. 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 Okay. All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> All right. The answers that we like to hear. <laughs> Good advice. Okay. Well, that's actually, I think we are out of time, but thank you, Yam. That was very helpful advice. Thank you. And up next is everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. And we're back. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thanks, Alyssa. Now, I'm pretty sure I know the answer here, but are you a Game of Thrones fan? I am not. I, I know. have heard amazing. Sorry. I'm So the finale was this weekend and uh, we couldn't discuss it because I'm in the middle of like four seasons ago. I so, see. Sorry. Uh, I know. In I a like year or so two when it comes behind back. When yeah. all these pop culture TV show things are big and I just feel like I'm out of the loop. Yeah, I, I keep missing them, but this one has just gotten too big to ignore. So I see. trying to avoid Twitter as much as I can in my job uh, to avoid finding out what right. happened on well, Sunday Well, I would night. say you loop back to me, but I have no clue what the show or it's uh, a sh- TV show. It's I don't a TV even know show. That. It has dragons. It has politics. It it's pretty good. A video. Something? It was a book. It was a book. It was okay. a book. Yes, right. and now it's a TV show. But we're there like, we I'm like three years behind. So, okay. but it doesn't come back for two years. So if you have time, oh, catch up. All it's right. Good. But mental note: when you're not reading research studies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great segue for me. Uh, we have a new working paper from NBER. You know, I like NBER. Examines the pros and cons of red shirting. Uh, this was actually, I saw a headline in Ed Weeks. And um, so anyway, ah. decided to uh, dig in. So this means when you hold back your child from mm-hmm. kindergarten. Popular with parents of young yes, boys. indeed. Uh, and it looks at the various short and long-term outcomes on red shirting for kindergarten readiness, school mm-hmm. retention, test scores, college outcomes and juvenile incarceration rates. So pretty cool. Wow. Um, we know holding a child back is an emotionally fraught decision for mm-hmm. parents. Um, this is when your kid's on the cusp of the starting date for entering kindergarten. And this study is really cool because it adds to the research by utilizing a really strong research design. Some of the mm. other studies didn't. And it follows children through college, which is also kind of a new uh, component to this. Mm. Uh, they use birth records in Florida, one of our big data states, for all children born between 1994 and 2000. And they matched these data with school records for academic years 1997 through 2012. Okay. Um, for the for the wonkoids out there, they use a regression discontinuity design. So they compare children whose age means they would have naturally been the oldest in class to the kids whose ages mean they would naturally be the youngest in the class. It's my favorite discontinuity design there and is. Yes. <laughs> and at the same time, this is what like an even like cooler angle to this. They compare siblings within families who barely met or barely missed the threshold for attendance in a given year in families. So they're comparing one child born in August to their sibling born in September so they can dramatically reduce the chances that the results stem from unobserved differences in families. So like you can imagine maybe some family would time their children's birth for August versus September. Maybe. I've definitely heard of People, you know, knowing when child sports leagues start, like timing their child so their kids the oldest there. So So anyway, it obviously reduces sample. I think that left them with about 2,000 kids that had this sibling uh, match. But anyway, um, super cool because they were able to control things for things that other uh, researchers were not able to. They find that the effects from being relatively old for a grade, so being born in September versus August, Mm -hmm. 
is around 0.2 standard deviations difference in test scores, which isn't huge, but it's something. At all um, grade levels or does it fade out? all grade levels okay. for a grade uh, in test scores and remain stable even when they consider gender. So not that big a difference between boys and girls. When they consider poverty level at birth, race, school quality, et cetera. I mean, they kept kind of like throwing in these mm-hmm. various um, controls and just finding that that 0.2 standard deviation difference sort of held um, okay. across these different variables. Um, in addition, September-born children, those, again, who are older for a grade, are 2.1% more likely to attend college, 3.3% more likely to receive a college degree, and 7.2% more likely to graduate from a selective college. Hmm. Then they're 15% less likely to be incarcerated in the juvenile justice system prior to their 16th birthday. Okay. Uh, but that's barely, that's, they kind of had some, um, a little bit of concern whether that was statistically significant. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, and this was kind of a really neat finding as well that got buried a little bit in the report, um, but they find that higher income families are more likely to hold back their August born kids, while students from lower income families are more likely to be retained in the early grades. Huh? So then, quote, they say, this differential remediation helps explain why we find larger kindergarten readiness gaps for lower SES children that then vanishes at the time of testing. So in English, that means that kids from both SES backgrounds end up at roughly the same place at the same educational level at the time of testing, irrespective of how much money their family has, because the wealthier kids are held back by their parents and the poorer kids are held back by the schools. Huh. And you know... That kind of tracks with, um, let's just call it common sense, where, you know, wealthier parents have the means to maybe pay for another year of private pre-K if that's what they have the child in or a family member that can stay at home, whereas families from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, like when school is free is a good option. That's right, to get them in. So I think the bottom line for me was that they cited some other research that showed that holding back a Mm -hmm. child, those uh, benefits are small and they sort of lessen over time. Mm -hmm. And so it really does seem like, you know, these decisions to hold back a child is very personal to a family. Um, And it doesn't, it doesn't, seem to be like something parents and families need to stress out about because it's not going to work out terribly according to the research like it doesn't appear to be a huge risk whatever decision you make okay because it sort of Mm. seems like it evens out in the wash over time so no matter what malcolm gladwell has made you think because i feel (laughs) like he sort of invented redshirting like i I know it was a concept like when i was growing up there were definitely boys in my class in particular who had like very early summer birthdays and Mm -hmm. their parents held them back but i do feel like it's kind of come up in the pop culture currency ever since he wrote was it outliers or was was it outliers yeah but i don't remember that one in there but it could have been in there maybe maybe i'm I'm reading david and goliath by him right now actually where he says that basically all the turtles in our life can be good things so anyway that's that's a a side note yeah well if it's not in there i'm sure someone on twitter please help me out i might have gotten that wrong yeah and that's too bad mike's not here for this portion because i feel like he had a similar decision making process right with his younger yeah, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, about it's that, um, I feel like any parent when their kid has a summer birthday, that's like inevitably a question, yeah. especially when you're in a you know kind of high, not high stress, but like a high stakes. You know, my, like you want your kid to go to college, you have these big hopes. Like kindergarten can be a stressful and scary transition. Like it's kind of right. a natural conversation to have. Yeah, and but so this I should mean, be reassuring. Yeah, I mean, I think in the in the scheme of things, there are definitely some benefits, but they don't tend to um, you know make a huge difference. And and yes. this sort of this sort of like catching up, you know, but because the actions of families mm-hmm. in different SES categories. Um, super interesting. That's new. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. Um, and yeah, I think it should be uh, slightly reassuring to parents who are freaking out about this decision. Yeah. 
literally research saying like make the best decision for you and your family very cool well thank you very much amber that is a super cool study yes indeed and that's all the time we have today for the education gadfly show till next week i'm amber northern and i'm Melissa schwank from the thomas b fordham institute signing off the education gadfly show is a production of the thomas b fordham institute located in washington dc for more information visit us online at edexcellence.net